Our scripture passage this morning comes from the book of Matthew, chapter 5, but you will notice also that our reading includes a passage from Matthew 19. One of the real challenges I had as I was preparing this message was what to do about the text. Not that the text isn't clear on its own, not that the text doesn't speak clearly to this very difficult and complex issue of divorce, but here Jesus touches on divorce with two verses, and then in Matthew 19, he deals even fuller, in an even fuller way with the subject of divorce, which left me sort of with this question, do I preach on these two verses and try to stay in these two verses and then deal more with the subject when it comes up in Matthew 19, or do we try to deal with it in a sort of comprehensive way here now in this text and draw from Matthew 19 as well? And in the end, I decided to go ahead and include Matthew 19 so that we could actually have sort of a meteor discussion of divorce. And so we're going to read from Matthew 5:31 and 32, and then we're going to move and read a few verses from Matthew 19 as well in the reading. So that is what we're doing this morning. Hear now the word of God. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now to Matthew 19. Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, and large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning... It was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this morning. Let's pray together. Oh God, we do confess that due to the hardness of our own hearts, Due to the present reality of sin in this world, there are problems that beset us. And that includes the reality of divorce, which has touched nearly all of us here in this room, I suspect, in one way or another. That makes this very personal. On the one hand, Lord, I ask you to give, give me wisdom to speak with sensitivity where needed. On the other hand, O oh God, many here may need a stern warning from your word. Help me to trust your spirit to distinguish the needs of your people and to apply your word in the way it is most needed for each of us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> the form of preaching that I practice is called Lectio Continua Preaching. That means 
It's Latin for continuous reading. And so we go one week at a time with the reading, and then we go straight through the text, one verse after the other. There's another way of preaching. It's called topical preaching, where the pastor preaches on a topic, and he chooses a different text each week, unconnected from the text the next week. Uh, One of the dangers of topical preaching, in my opinion, and one of the reasons I don't do it, is that after a while, the congregation starts to learn what the preacher is really passionate about, what he really likes, and you start to learn what his hobby horses are. Uh, After a while, you can go, you know, this is pretty one note. I keep hearing the same thing all the time. Now, you could do that with me as well. Maybe you found my one notes that I hit all the time, Uh, but at least the text is always different. Um, You know, you could be like, hey, look, six sermons on family worship in the last six months. I think I know what the pastor's hobby horse is, right? But with Lectio Continua preaching, the text dictates the next topic, and you end up covering topics that the pastor on his own would never have chosen. Today's passage is a case in point. When uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, I I was chided the last few weeks. I never brought Martin Lloyd-Jones up, so I had to bring him up today. But when Martin Lloyd-Jones preached on this subject, on the Sermon on the Mount, one of the things that struck me as I was reading his own sermon on the subject of divorce was 40 years ago, he talked about how timid he was to talk about the subject of divorce, and he talked about how rare it was for the subject to be addressed in pulpits in his day. 40 years ago. Uh, I have a theory that it's not easier or less awkward in 2021 to talk about divorce. Um, some of you in this room are divorced some of you are divorced and remarried some of you are the children of divorce Uh, I am I'm new enough that I don't know the details of everyone's situation some of you may have experienced horrible treatment by your spouses some of you may have been cheated on some of you may have been the one who cheated um Some of you are the children of divorce, and even talking about it is hard, and the holidays are complicated every year because of this subject, and not just the holidays. Um, And so from the preacher's perspective, this feels like a minefield for me to walk into and address. You could imagine why some simply avoid the subject, because it feels like wherever you step, someone is going to feel it. Someone's going to have a thought on it. And some of them may not be good thoughts. Um, And yet, here's the reality. Jesus did not speak in a different situation. It's not like Jesus was speaking in a culture where no one was divorced and no one had been divorced. In fact, it appears that the the Jewish world back in Jesus' day was pretty generous with allowing divorce. And so Jesus is speaking to this crowd. He's surrounded by people from all these different walks of life. Yes, they're from the Jewish culture, but yet at the very same time, this is a culture that has divorce and has experienced it. And so Jesus is talking to people who have cheated or been cheated on. He is talking to people who have divorced or been divorced. And he's talking to people who've been remarried as well. And so th- this, is, this is something I often have to remind myself of. 2021 is not a unique time. Human history has been human history, has been human nature all this time. And so in this, this has always been a tender issue for people. And so in this sense, I would just say my own attitude is this. We need to say the truth and, and we can't invent it for ourselves. It has to be given to us by God. And so because of that, 
especially even the more sensitive that the subject is, my, my philosophy is to stay close to the text so that when things are said, uh, when things happen or are said that sting, I, I want you to feel confident that it's not Adam up here saying them, that, that I want you to, to sense this really comes from the text. So I want to keep my head down in the text. I want our eyes to be on the word, and we want to be watching the text closely so that we can see it is really God saying the uncomfortable truths that we may not like. So that's a comfort to me, right? Um, if we are offended by the content of the text, then it is God who offends. And if God offends us, it means we need it. I'm also very aware that because this subject is so painful, there's a sense in which we need to have the grace of Christ spoken into our situation. I'm not, I would not be happy to have people leave here today feeling more burdened. Christ comes to lift burdens. Jesus says, Take my yoke upon you, for my burden is light. Jesus, is, Jesus says, give your sin to me. Give me your past, and I'm going to let you walk free. And so I want you to leave this place today, whatever your background, whatever your situation, I want you to be able to say, Jesus is carrying my burdens. I want you to sense that today. Um, and yet God has given us this word. And his word is filled with instructions even on hard topics that we would find a way to avoid if we could. This, is, this passage is a passage that follows on the heels of Jesus' discussion of adultery. And if you remember, he drove home to us that sin. Uh, and in this case, the adultery begins in the heart. He's talked about how murder begins in the heart. Then he talks about how adultery begins in the heart. And now he comes to this subject that is intimately connected with adultery. And that is the subject of divorce and remarriage. If I could give a spoiler about Jesus' whole message here this morning, I think what Jesus is doing is he's saying something like this. Divorce should not be easy. It is by design hard, and it is a last resort, not a first impulse. And he is saying that divorce comes with incredible consequences because by design, God hates it. Divorce is not easy. It doesn't sweep a problem under the rug. Oftentimes, it just replaces our problems with new problems. Oftentimes, we take the problems we carried into a marriage, and what do we do? We bring it to the next one. Because we are actually the problem that follows us from marriage to marriage. And that's why Jesus says that someone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. And then you'll notice in chapter 19, he switches that and says, he who divorces his wife and then marries commits adultery also. It's almost like he wants to offset what he says in chapter 5 by saying, this applies across the board, whether you're the, the man or whether you're the woman in the marriage. The point is that adultery happens when divorce happens. Because it turns out divorce doesn't give us a crisp, new, clean page to start our life from scratch on. Now, there's a lot here. There's, there are exceptions, and there are details that Jesus addresses. But at rock bottom, Jesus is affirming the sanctity of marriage, and he is reminding us that marriage is not easily broken and done away with. Uh, marriage is one of those foundational things that we take for granted as a reality of life, and yet I think it's helpful that out of the starting gate, we have a good, sound definition of marriage. Uh, my favorite definition of marriage is probably from the, the Reformed Presbyterian Church, uh, which defines marriage this way in one of their documents that they wrote. Listen to this definition. 
Marriage is the unique one flesh relationship of a man and woman joined together by God in a union that he wills to be both permanent and exclusive, binding the couple to each other in a lifelong companionship of common life and conjugal love. Um, that's a study committee report they wrote back in 1973, and I think it's still a really good, sound definition. The book of Malachi talks about marriage as being something that is a covenant. It uses this covenant language to describe what the man and woman experience. Uh, marriage is so important that God uses it as his illustration for how faithful he is to his own people. He says, I'm so faithful to you that you can look at marriage as the thing that shows you just how faithful I am to Israel. I will never leave you, he says. Look at marriage. That's what he does. When he wants to show he's never going to leave or abandon Israel, he uses marriage as his illustration. He says, this is the best way for me to show you just how permanently bound to you I am, Israel, even when things turn really bad. So when we talk about married life, we are talking about two people. They have a duty to work, to stay together, to grow together, to cling to one another in that very real one flesh union. So that's marriage. But this isn't a passage about marriage, is it? This is a passage where Jesus is addressing the subject of divorce. What is divorce? Well, the Old Testament word for divorce is the word for cutting off. It's the word for putting away. It's the word for dismissing. It's the word for sending away. If you have been divorced, every one of those words and phrases is painful. In the New Testament, sometimes divorce is the word for separating or dividing or, or sending away. And so the idea is that divorce is to cut off the marriage. Divorce is to unmistakably and, and, and irrevocably break the marriage bond. To break this thing that was supposed to be permanent. This thing that God established as this analogy for his own faithfulness. And that's why Jesus says, What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So how do you touch on this complicated subject of divorce in one single sermon? Well, it won't be easy, uh, but I want to approach it under two points. First, I want to talk about divorce regulated. And then second, Jesus does address this, and I think we need to as well, divorce exceptions. So regulated regulations and exceptions. Regulations and exceptions. Uh, that might sound boring. I doubt you'll be bored today. Um, but first, we, we need to face this. We need to face the fact that divorce is indeed regulated in the Bible. You see it. Um, that's what makes all of this so difficult is God makes something, in this case marriage, and he intends it to be one way, and yet his word also makes plans for when things go sideways. And that can create this illusion that divorce is as much a part of, of God's plan as marriage is. Gerhardus Voss uses this illustration. Um, I don't usually go to Gerhardus Voss for making things simpler, but somehow Gerhardus Voss, I think, is really gives this beautiful illustration of, of marriage here. Listen to this. He says this. There's this beautiful and costly vase. I don't know. Vases aren't really big right now in decorating, but imagine a beautiful, costly vase anyway. Um, if it's beautiful and it, it's costly, it is not designed to be broken. I think we could all say that, right? You've got a beautiful vase. The plan is not, hey, how can we break this thing? 
Its design is that it's going to hold flowers or it's going to be decorative. It's going to be looked at. The, the, art, the artfulness of it's going to be appreciated, right? But here is the reality. If the vase was to be broken, it would not be living up to its design, right? And yet a vase can be broken. A vase can be shattered. And a shattered vase on the ground is not much of a vase. And here's what Voss says, though. He says, if a family member carelessly broke it, there's nothing to do but sweep up the broken fragments and dispose of them. He says the vase is destroyed. It is destroyed as an objective reality. It has really happened, even if it's not designed to be broken. It can be. He says, if this beautiful thing is broken, we have to do something about it. We don't just leave the glass lying all over the ground. We address it. We, we pick it up. We sweep it up. We have to do something. And in that sense, Jesus says in Matthew 19, 8, that divorce does exist because of your hardness of heart. In other words, the law of God has this dose of realism to it. Right? There's this reality that marriages are broken by certain things. And divorce exists because of this reality that is not part of the design. So just because God tells us what to do if the vase is broken doesn't mean, well, it was always meant to be broken. No. Its design was to be a beautiful display of the Creator's work. The Jewish people did permit divorce because the Bible permitted it in certain circumstances. Uh, you see the discussion of it take place in Deuteronomy 24. We're not going to read Deuteronomy 24, but it is regulated there. And the Jewish people permitted, uh, interpreted Deuteronomy 24 in a couple of different ways. Um, Jesus refers to it here, saying that whoever divorces his wife should give her a bill of divorce. He's acknowledging that because that comes from Deuteronomy 24. <clears throat> now, if you read Deuteronomy 24, I want you to see that even as this, the instructions are given for the writing of a certificate of divorce, I want you to notice there's an element of mercy in this, in this regulation, right? Augustine points this out. He says that the intent of including a bill of divorce is in part to keep a man from quickly and easily putting away his wife. It's not done as a spur of the moment thing. In, in other words, he, we talked about friction last week, right? There is friction in the divorce process that is introduced in Deuteronomy 24. And so Augustine's point is that the need for these divorce papers means the man can't just look at his wife and say, leave me, go away, you displease me. Instead, there is this intermediate step. It slows the process down. And, and Augustine says it slows it down in a good way. And as Augustine puts it, perhaps in writing this bill of divorce, the man might have time to think of the evil of putting away his wife. So even, even as this thing is allowed, it, it's almost as though the law of God is slowing it down. Let's make this harder. Let's make this more difficult. Let's not make this too easy. I, I mentioned the idea that sin is sin and it starts in our hearts. And yet last Sunday I also mentioned that God is not averse to creating friction when it comes to sin. And this law is an example of that kind of friction. Jesus says in our text from Matthew 19, divorce is in the Bible not because it is God's design, but because of your hardness of heart. He knew the vase could be broken. He gives instructions for how to clean up the mess. So there's this there's a realism to the scriptures where God sets out his standard. He makes everything opposite of that standard socially more difficult to follow through on. Friction. Divorce should be difficult. 
It should be life-altering. It should give reason for long, serious pause. It should not be done lightly, ever. We had these two schools of thought in Judaism by Jesus' time, both of which made it fairly easy to divorce one's wife, one definitely more than the other. Um, and this moment, this social, social context is the moment that Jesus is speaking in, and it's these people he's really speaking to. On the one hand, you had the school of Shammai. The school of Shammai looks at Deuteronomy 24. It says divorce could only happen in the case of sexual immorality or immodesty. You might think, okay, that sounds pretty fair. But according to the school of Shammai, if a wife went outside with her hair unfastened, that would be immodest and a divorce could take place. So it doesn't sound all that compelling. <laughs> um, if you've ever gone outside, ladies, with your hair unfastened, hopefully you don't want to be thought of as immodest. On the other hand, you have the school of Hillel. The school of Hillel said that a man was allowed to divorce his wife for any reason. When we see any reason, you mean any reason. Uh, if, if she burnt a meal, uh, if he found a more attractive woman, both of these were reasons, according to the school of Hillel, why you could get a divorce. It seems likely what Jesus is doing here, he's quoting someone from the school of Hillel. For them, marriage was, it was a contract. Think of it more like a contract than a covenant. It's a contract. It can be broken. And so for them, the most challenging thing in all of this is, hey, we've got to write a contract. Wow, this is really difficult. We've got to write something out about this. Except in certain cases, which we're going to get to in the next point, Jesus wants us to know that divorcing puts your former spouse in an impossible position. An impossible position where his or her next relationship or his or her next marriage will be adulterous. Because the, the divorce was never allowed or legitimate in the first place. So if you divorce and your divorce is without biblical warrant, you are sinning against each other further into your marriage. In other words, Jesus argues... Contrary to the school of Hillel, con contrary to these people who want it to be very easy, you cannot just divorce easily for any reason. The shattered pieces are not easily swept away. The law of God does regulate divorce. We see that. We've, we've seen how it does that. But that doesn't make it any more biblical or acceptable. So that's the first point I want us to take this morning. I want us to see divorce is regulated in Scripture. We need to appreciate why that is. We need to appreciate what that means. Second this morning, though, we need to deal with the divorce exceptions because Jesus brings them up. What do I mean by exceptions? Well, we saw already if someone divorces without biblical warrant, they are putting their spouse in an untenable situation. Think about this. You live a life of singleness now. Because you didn't have biblical grounds for divorce, so now what is the other person being called to? They're called, being called to a life of singleness or reconciliation with you. And they may be getting called to a life of singleness even when they don't have the gift of singleness. And they burn, perhaps. We talked about the reality that if someone burns, it means they're supposed to marry. Or they risk committing adultery by eventually remarrying. That's the position you put the other person in when you say, look, we just can't make it work out. But there aren't biblical grounds for it. That's what we call a catch-22. Uh, putting someone between a rock and a hard place. And Jesus highlights that here. But then Jesus does make this little statement here. I say little. Maybe not little. In Matthew 5.32, he says this. Everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, 
makes her commit adultery. And then Matthew 19, 9, he says it a little differently. He says, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. So in the one case, Jesus is saying that um, in Matthew 5, Jesus is concerned with what the divorcing person does to their spouse. And in Matthew 19, he's concerned with what they do to themselves if they remarry. So the idea here is, is at the very least to create serious pause. Someone might think their life would be easier if this marriage was over. They might think that the existence of divorce as a mechanism of ending a marriage means there's nothing wrong with ending the marriage. After all, they might say God wouldn't allow something that's bad, would he? But Jesus says, in essence, except for very limited situations, if you divorce, you don't have biblical grounds, you then become accountable for your spouse's adultery that follows. It's a heavy thing. It's meant to be heavy. Now, Paul does mention another exception. I say Paul, not Jesus. If you look in the uh, uh, book of 1 Corinthians, Paul mentions something, and we're going to get to it. Um, but before we get to Paul, before we get to the other exception that Paul mentions, I want you to just notice this. Jesus doesn't come in with the laundry list of exceptions. He gives one. I think sometimes we read Jesus' words here and we think the whole conversation is really about the exception. We sort of read the passage and it's easy for us to fixate on the exception and, and want to talk about the exception and what might fit into this exception. But just stop for a moment. Take a step back and think about this. Jesus' real point is that divorce is hard and that it is rarely warranted. The Jewish people made divorce way too common and, and way too easy. And it's easy for us to think about the exception and dwell upon the exception. John Murray wrote a paper for the Orthodox Presbyterian Church years ago, and he, he warned about this. He said, preoccupation with the one exception should never be permitted to obscure the force of the negation of all the others. So Jesus is saying, pay more attention to what I'm saying about divorce than I am to the exceptions. Let's talk about the two exceptions Jesus and Paul mentioned. So we're going to be here and then we're going to jump to 1 Corinthians for the second one. First, let's talk about the exception Jesus raises here. The exception is infidelity. Um, there's been a lot of ink spilled over this issue and time is scarce. This is a big subject. When the PCA wrote papers on this, it, it was not a short paper. And there is no simple way to address these things. So what you're going to get from me is some boiled down summaries more than anything else. I can give you more information later if you ask for it. Jesus says a spouse who seeks a divorce causes adultery, except in one case that he mentions here, and that is something that in the Greek is called porneia. Porneia. Now, you probably recognize that prefix, porn. Porn is a word for unclean. Porn is a word for something that is sexually immoral, an appropriately named item, I think. Porneia is the Greek word for uncleanness. It's the word for sexual immorality. Uh, to make a potentially long discussion short, Jesus is saying that the person who seeks the divorce causes adultery to take place unless the other marital partner has already been unfaithful, in which case he says they are the cause. So they, they can't introduce guilt if it's already there, in other words. You can't bring guilt into a marriage when the other person's already instituted it and brought it in. So if the other partner has committed what Jesus calls porneia, then the 
what he calls, or at least what we sometimes maybe lazily call the innocent party, cannot be guilty of placing them in this untenable situation. If one party was sexually unfaithful in the marriage, they have committed this pornea Jesus speaks of. In that case, the person who committed adultery already brought sin into the marriage and initiated the break. The other party did not. Now, there are pastoral difficulties here. (laughs) There are sexual sins that someone can commit that aren't necessarily adultery that we think of in the strict physical sense, and yet they can break the marital trust. What has the PCA said on that? What's our denomination said about this? Well, we produced a study committee paper years ago. One of the things that the study committee paper said is that there are some sexual sins that can become so externalized, in other words, acted out upon by one party, that it becomes a substitute for the one flesh relation with one's spouse. And in that case, they suggest that the session of a church may judge such a sexual sin as being pornea, like Jesus speaks of here. If I could be direct, for example, someone looking consistently, unrepentantly at pornography may very well be in this kind of a situation where they've not gone outside the marriage and yet they actually have damaged the one flesh marriage union. But every session, according to the study committee paper, needs to judge these things on their own. Um, That takes us into hard territory that sessions need to labor over, but we probably need to set aside at this point. Uh, We don't want to lose the forest for the trees. Now, there is one other case in which the New Testament tells us divorce is permitted, and that is Paul when he speaks in 1 Corinthians 7, 10 to 15. I can't exegete the text and do it justice. Um, All I can do is point you to the text and give you a summary of what our own church has said concerning this difficult issue. This is a text where Paul speaks of the believer as being abandoned by the unbeliever in the marriage. We're talking about abandonment at this point. And in the text, it says, if the unbeliever seeks to leave, let him depart. The brother or sister is not bound. Here is what our church's study committee on divorce said about this. It says, in this passage, when Paul says, let him depart, the brother or sister is not bound. The strong presumption is that he is saying that the believer is not obligated to prevent the divorce and is also free to remarry. All right. This is called the desertion exception. Sometimes it's called the desertion exception. To be brief, the idea here is that for a spouse to desert the other leaves the other one in a difficult situation. Are they to remain single for the rest of their life? And Paul's response is not necessarily. If you are a Christian whose unbelieving spouse has abandoned you, you are no longer bound. You do not have to fight to stay together You don't have to wait them out for the rest of your life if they won't consent to stay with you. Now, here's where I I make an argument that you will have to decide if I'm deriving it from good and necessary consequence from Scripture. I said at the beginning, I want to make sure that I say things that come from the text. And here's where I, uh, it's possible that you will need to judge whether what I'm saying is biblical or not. So I am, I'm very self-conscious at this point in the argument that I'm making. Uh, I think this comes from good and necessary consequence from Scripture, but listen carefully. Here is the principle that, that I hold. When you physically compel, I'm talking about the subject of abuse right now. 
When you physically compel someone to do something, you become guilty of what you physically compel them to do. If you, if you make somebody do something, then you are guilty of what they do. And I think this applies in marriages that involve abuse. I do believe in some situations spousal abuse is a form of desertion. If you strike your wife, heaven forbid, what are you doing? Besides committing the sin of hatred, you are driving her away. You are literally forcing her to become the deserter in the marriage, right? Uh, and I'll flip, flip the example too. If you harm your husband, you are doing your very best to force him to flee. So that actually makes the abuser the one who is guilty of desertion, even if the other runs because they're trying to cause the other one to flee. If I can make this miserable enough, I can get the other person to initiate. I can make the other person, quote unquote, the guilty party. Or, or, or risk physical danger or even risk death. Maybe you say, preacher, I know people who are church members who claim to be Christians who've done these things. What do you do about a person who says they're a believer and they seem guilty of this sin of abandonment? Um, you do have professing believers. They abandon the marriage. They say, I'm a believer, but I'm still going to go. Um, this, is, this is my approach. If a person who abandons or strikes their spouse, they have every reason to question that they are in Christ. If they do not have biblical grounds, if they don't have biblical grounds for divorce, you should seriously question whether you're in Christ. And I, I do believe that the abused is biblically bound to seek shelter. They are, they are biblically bound to seek safety. And the abuser needs to be held accountable by the law and by the church for their sin. I also think in this case, the unbeliever has deserted. And eventually in time with pastoral care and session oversight, the innocent party is not bound and is permitted to, re, to remarry. Again, I think what you have is the element of realism here. This is real life. And people sometimes make terrible decisions. It is a sad reality that some spouses do simply leave. They don't maybe commit adultery necessarily, but they don't want to stay either. And in such cases, Paul says, the one who's left is not under bondage. Let him depart. There's a lot more that we could say. There's no planet on which I just said is an adequate treatment of 1 Corinthians 10 or 7, 10 to 15. It's just not. However, you'll have to do for the time being. We can talk at the door or we can talk later about this issue, but uh, this will have to do for the moment. I think at least we can say that the Bible is telling us that in all but a few limited situations, there is guilt of adultery attached to divorcing if you do not have biblical grounds. Pornea, abandonment. The point that Jesus is reinforcing is, is that divorce is not easy, it should not be easy, and it comes with a tremendous weight of guilt. The mere existence of the regulation does not make it a good thing. Let me say a few concluding remarks to those listening who may have, be from different situations. I can't anticipate every situation, but I want to speak to a few situations. First of all, I'm going to be really uncomfortably direct about one thing that I don't know if any of you have it in your minds, but as a pastor, it's always on my mind, and it's this. If you are in an abusive marriage, do not let what you think you've heard here prevent you from doing something about your circumstances. If your spouse 
is harming you, abusing you, if you believe that you are a victim, this church session will not and should not ever provide cover for abuse. Speak to the elders. We will work through the complexities of divorce and remarriage later, but do not stay in a dangerous situation because you think that the church cannot or will not do anything in your situation unless adultery has been committed. That is not the case. We as elders, as pastors, we take abuse seriously. We want you out of a dangerous situation. So don't suffer in silence. We will come to your defense. We will take claims of abuse with absolute seriousness. Let me state that unequivocally. If you are an abuser, repent immediately before God. Confess. And if you are abused, seek help. Do not, do not fear that the church will become a shelter for your abuser. Second, I want to speak to those who are married right now. Please hear the seriousness with which Jesus takes your marriage. Your marriage is worth all of your effort. And the Bible is filled with instruction about how to love your spouse. What I want to see in, in, in our church is marriages that reflect God's own commitment to his people. Faithfulness, love, self-sacrifice, mutual care. These are all hallmarks of Christian marriage. Your marriage is worth it. Your marriage is a picture of Jesus and how much he loves his church and how faithfully, how faithful he is to his church. There's probably a whole series on marriage that I'm talking myself into at some point. There's a lot that the Bible says about this. Jesus loves your marriage and he cares about it and he wants it healthy. Make it a priority. Third, I want to speak to those who have remarried. You've been married before. You've experienced the pain of divorce. And let's just say you look back and you say, Pastor, if I'm really honest, God knows the truth. We didn't have biblical grounds for divorce. She didn't cheat on me. I didn't cheat on her. We just couldn't make it work and we didn't get along and we were both so tired and so we divorced. And now I'm remarried or my spouse is now remarried. What should I do? That's the person I want to talk to here as we conclude, because I suspect that is the person who feels the most weight from this entire sermon. Here's what I want to say. Remain with your new spouse. It isn't a virtuous thing. I once knew a couple where they became convinced that their remarriage was not biblical, that they shouldn't have done it, that they didn't have biblical grounds for their divorce and uh, that they previously had. And so they went to their pastor and they said, what should I do? And the pastor gave them the advice of staying separated from one another and trying to reconnect with their former spouses. <laughs> no, don't do that. Okay. Um, <laughs> okay. Here's what I want to say. I have to tell you that that advice floats around out there. Um, it is not a virtuous thing for you to compound the sin of an unbiblical divorce and remarriage with another unbiblical divorce. Don't compound the sin. In God's eyes, you really are married again. This really is your spouse. This really is your husband or wife. You really are in a new one flesh union. 
And I believe that Jesus would speak these words over your new union. What God has joined together, let not man separate. Please hear this as we conclude. There is, there is grace for you. Jesus receives us. Not because we are good. He receives us because he is good. Uh, he shed his blood for his people. He married himself to a people that he knew would be unfaithful. He married himself to a people that he knew he would have to be the faithful one to carry all the weight in the relationship. And that really is Jesus towards us. And, and there is that, so our goodness is not the basis of our acceptance before God. I have to say that. I have to say that because if, 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 you, if you're guilty right now, because of something that's happened in the past, I want you to know that the grace of Jesus Christ is there for you. There is grace for you as you commit to your new spouse, as you are united in your one flesh union. I hope also if you are married and you've had thoughts of divorce, I pray that today's passage would give you serious, serious pause. Long, slow reflection and pause. You get biblical counsel from your pastor. You get biblical counsel from the elders of the church. And you ask them, do I have biblical grounds? And if they say no, you get to work. You get to work in your marriage. It is worth all the effort you are being asked to put into it. Our churches, usually you don't end a sermon with a study committee report quote from a study committee report. It doesn't usually sound very gracious, but I actually am going to conclude with a quote because it'll surprise you. Uh, a quote from our denomination's study committee report on this issue. I want, to hear, I want you to hear what they have to say. Here it is. Sessions in cases of remarried couples should ask parties to seek God's grace, gracious forgiveness by repenting of their past sins in marriage and by rededicating their lives to Christ in the confidence of his forgiveness and his acceptance of their present marriage. We must remember that adultery and divorce are not the unforgivable sin, but that they, along with other ungodly sins, are covered by the blood of Christ. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your Word speaks directly even into very difficult areas of our lives. Would you help us to receive your word, to receive your warnings, and to have marriages where we love each other as you plan and designed? If we need help, please give us hearts that make us willing to reach out before the situation feels helpless. Strengthen us through the ministry, through the work of your son, Jesus Christ, who, who bought his bride with his own blood, that he might love us to the very end. Help our marriages to reflect that same truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.